2: Just a little fair warning here before we begin. This episode goes over a ton of the victim's family history and Texas history, almost all of which is important to telling the story of Mary Moore Seawright. Please remember, folks, it's as important to Erica and me to honor the victims we cover as it is to tell the story of the crime itself. We hope you'll find these considerably condensed histories as fascinating and vital to the story as we do. Thanks, y'all. The Gone Cold podcast may contain violent or graphic subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Running directly through the center of Paris, Texas in the mid-1800s was the Central National Road. A path cleared to mitigate the heavy flow of travelers coming into the state, beginning at the Oklahoma border, and going through Dallas so it could connect with other roadways that went to cities like San Antonio and Austin. The Central National Road certainly gave the community an advantage that many small towns like it did not have at the time it was built, direct commerce to a big city but it was the Texas and Pacific Railway's construction in Paris that is responsible for transforming it from a small, quiet farming and ranching community into a modest but bustling city. When the railroad was completed there in 1876, the new potential for selling and trading goods seemed endless. If you are the superstitious type, however, you might also consider the railroad coming to Paris, Texas, a curse. After the construction of the Texas and Pacific, folks came to Paris in droves, seeking opportunity. At about one o'clock in the afternoon of August 31st, 1877, only a year after the railway's completion, one such person, a considerably drunk fellow, reported to be named only Taylor, stood inside the city saloon, located just off the public square, and poured oil on the floor. As he ignited the black puddle, Taylor was heard remarking that he was going to burn the damn town up. The wooden watering hole went up in flames fast, and the blaze quickly spread to the surrounding buildings. As firefighters attempted to douse the flames, the water stopped flowing and they could do little to nothing as the city burned. When it was over, a significant portion of Paris, Texas, was destroyed. A 13-acre area in the heart of the city, in fact. The post office, a telegraph office, three hotels, the saloon, of course, and many of the residents' homes, among several other structures, were reduced to ash and soot. The damage is estimated by some to have been what is the equivalent of almost $3 billion in 2022 money. It's unclear how many lives were lost, but it was at least one. The people of Paris rebuilt, only to be devastated again on April 27, 1896, by another fire, a blaze that began in a slipshod building behind the Peterson Hotel. Though the property damage wasn't as severe as it had been almost 19 years earlier, three men died in this blaze, including two volunteer firefighters whom the fiery walls of the Peterson Hotel crashed down upon as they fought the flames, S.H. Ramsey and Louis Rowich. The third man who died was the person who inadvertently started the fire. Deputy U.S. Marshal John Salmon had knocked over his lantern while sleeping off the three saloons worth of booze he'd partaken in the evening before. Again, Paris, Texas was rebuilt. The city actually enjoyed a significant growth spurt after the turn of the 20th century. But alas, the curse returned. At about 5 p.m. on March 21, 1916, a fire again broke out in the city. It's not thought to have been the direct result of a human being this time. Rather, it's theorized a spark from a switch engine ignited dry grass. There'd been no significant rainfall in months, and on the day of the fire, 50-mile-per-hour winds spread the blaze quickly and efficiently. The wind carried the flames northeast for hours, and around midnight, as the wind veered west, the flames followed, the wind leading them back toward the city to consume areas it had missed before. Nearly everything on Pine Bluff Street was destroyed. Though fire trucks came from across state lines and other Texas cities like Dallas, the fire burned throughout the night but was finally contained by sunrise the following day. Churches, residences, City Hall, the Courthouse, the Jailhouse, and the High School were among the ruins. Almost 275 acres burned, and three people were dead as a result of the Paris Fire of 1916. Other great tragedies befell Paris throughout the years, from tornadoes and other fires to racial violence, lynchings that continued for decades in the city and Lamar County. In 1996, too, the brutal murder of an elderly woman from a prominent and long-standing Paris, Texas, family shook the city's residents and left police baffled. Mary Josephine Moore was born in Paris, Texas, on September 1, 1908. She was the youngest of her siblings, which included a brother, Hardy, and two sisters, Blanche and Margie. Mary was born into a family of influence and privilege. Her father, Judge William Folsom Moore, whose parents were early settlers of Lamar County, was born in 1868 in a bygone community called Starksville, just east of Paris. When he was five years old, his father, Mary's grandfather, and former Confederate Captain William Ebenezer Moore became a Texas State Senator for a brief time. Though his father had since given up legislation for a simpler life of farming and trade, William Folsom Moore desired to make a long career in law, in both practice and legislation. After his primary and secondary education in Lamar and Red River counties, he studied pre-law at Washington and Lee University in Lexington, Virginia, before returning to Texas to attend the University of Texas School of Law in Austin. After graduating with a law degree in 1882, William Folsom Moore made his way back home to Lamar County, where he opened a private practice that still exists today in 2022. He practiced law in Paris, Texas, even after his successful election bid gave him a spot in the Texas House of Representatives, where he served four years before deciding to slow down and focus on his family. In 1939, William Folsom Moore was appointed First Assistant District Attorney General of Texas and the following year appointed Chief Justice of the Texas Supreme Court after a sitting judge's sudden death. He did not seek reelection, and instead returned to his practice in Paris while serving the city in various civic positions. Mary's maternal grandfather was also a name in Texas law. Judge Thomas Conrad Goodner received his primary and secondary educations at prestigious private schools and eventually graduated with a law degree from Cumberland University in Lebanon, Tennessee, before traveling to McKinney, Texas, in a horse drawn, covered wagon. Reportedly arriving there penniless, Thomas Goodner had a highly successful law practice there just four years later. He was elected a Collin County judge four times over before retiring the bench to resume practicing law and eventually becoming vice president of Collin County National Bank. Mary Josephine Moore spent her formative years living at her family's grand, two-story, colonial-revival-style home at 711 Pine Bluff Street in the heart of Paris, Texas. The family moved into the house after its completion in 1919, built after nearly the entirety of Pine Bluff Street was lost in the fire of 1916. Mary adored animals, particularly the grace and majesty of horses, and stayed involved with equestrian training both as a child and an adult. At Paris High School, Mary discovered golf. Already passionate about nature, the sport furthered her appreciation for the outdoors. As far as Mary's studies were concerned, Texas history was the subject that seemed less a requirement to her than an engaging and often thrilling experience. After high school, Mary Moore attended and graduated from Ward Belmont College in Nashville, Tennessee, before enrolling at the University of Texas in Austin, where she joined Pi Beta Phi. Eventually, in fact, Mary became the president of the sorority's Austin alumni chapter. At some point, too, she attended the Art Students League of New York City. Mary came back to Paris after graduating UT Austin, only to return to the capital city years later when her father, William Folsom Moore, was appointed acting chief justice of the Texas Supreme Court in 1939. That's when Mary met her not-so-distant future husband, prominent Austin businessman, Dan Seawright. Only
1: 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu/visit. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?
0: Lucky Play for free at Luckylandslots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: Brought into the world in eighteen eighty seven, Daniel Foltz Seawright, or Dan as he was known, was the Austin native born son of a well established and influential Texas pioneer family. Dan's mother, Will Ella Hardiman, was the daughter to William Polk Hardiman, a Texas Ranger who fought in the Mexican-American War and later became a captain and then lieutenant colonel of the Confederate Army. Dan's paternal grandfather, Gilbert Alexander Seawright, came to Burnett County, Texas from Lancaster, Pennsylvania in 1859 to claim land left to him when his uncle died. He began operating a cattle ranch there, but, still a resident of Pennsylvania, was drafted into the Union Army when the Civil War broke out. Gilbert Seawright did his duty and fought bravely for the United States before traveling to Wyoming to partner with his brother and another man in the cattle business there. After finally returning to his land in Texas in the early 1880s, Gilbert formed the Seawright Cattle Company in 1883, still maintaining the business in Wyoming at the time. It was a success, and in no time he'd partnered with other family members to form the Dolores Land and Cattle Company, which owned land in several Texas counties, including Dimmit, Zavala, and Kinney counties. Though Gilbert's son, William Francis Seawright, also went on to be a cattleman, Dan Seawright sought opportunities outside the purview of his father and grandfather's family business. On June 21, 1904, a little more than four years before Mary Josephine Moore was born, her future husband made what would prove to be the second-best decision of his life. Then a bright-eyed and motivated 16-year-old, Dan C. Wright began a new job as an office boy for the well-established Walter Tipps Company. The business began on Congress Avenue in the state's capital in 1857 as a general store, selling ironware like pots and pans, leather goods like pistol holders and belts, ammunition, and nuts and bolts, among hundreds of other products. Originally owned by Prussian immigrant Edward Tipps, his brother Walter and two other men bought the store after his death in 1872. Walter had emigrated to what is now known as Port Lavaca, Texas, from what was then known as Prussia, and he'd seen many goods not available in Austin being loaded off ships onto docks, giving him an idea on how to expand the business. He began transporting what were considered specialty items from port cities to the Inland City by covered wagon. He was the first man to offer many goods and products to the people of Austin. By 1899, the Walter Tips Company was selling heavy farm machinery like cotton gins, gasoline motors, fire department equipment like hoses and nozzles, and even motorboats. By 1912, eight years after he started at the Hardware Wholesaler, Dan Seawright was offered a job as a salesman. For 25 years, Dan hardly noticed the scenery going by as he traveled the country selling goods to retailers, though his hard work was rewarded while on the road when he was elected to the Walter Tips Company Board of Directors in 1927. Dan's first wife died in 1931, leaving the man a single parent to his three-year-old son, Lee Allen Seawright. In 1936, at 48 years old, Dan was appointed buyer, followed closely by becoming the company's secretary, and even closer still, vice president. 32-year-old Mary Moore became Mary Seawright in January 1940 when she married 52-year-old Dan Fultz Seawright. Mary was known to many as something of an eccentric, independent, and certainly not a follower. After marrying and settling down some in Austin, she became involved in activities that were expected of socialites though only if those activities were in the service of her city, state, nature, or people in general. Mary and Dan founded the Audubon Society's Austin chapter, an environmental organization that protects and preserves birds and bird habitats. Her involvement in the Audubon Society, Mary would later say, was the thing she enjoyed above all else. Also among the founders of the Heritage Society of Austin, Mary and Dan Seawright took pride in their role of restoring and maintaining the city's history through its architecture and attractions, while encouraging growth and the inclusion of all Austin's peoples and cultures. In 1944, they bought a large ranch on Slaughter Creek, in what was a rural area south of Austin at the time and for decades after. Descendants of Christopher Columbus Slaughter, the cattle king of Texas, sold the Seawrights the property. Slaughter once owned more than one million acres in West Texas, where his tens of thousands of cattle grazed. Dan and Mary Seawright renamed their ranch Indian Grass Farm, where they established a home and began raising Black Angus cattle, the first folks in the area to do so. They started with 18 head of black Angus, and a few years later, in 1947, that number had grown to more than 30, all of which were said to have been almost show pedigree. At the first Travis County Livestock Show, in fact, a calf of theirs won the Grand Championship. Though she'd grown up feeding on a silver spoon. The hard-working and sometimes downright dirty life of a rancher had Mary Seawright much more in her element than hoity-toity parties hobnobbing with the Austin elite. Dan, too, was happier there. Cattle was, after all, the Seawright family business and legacy. The couple bought a hay baler, harvesting their own hay to feed their cattle while selling what was left over to other local ranchers. On September 28, 1950, Dan was elected president of the Walter Tipps Company, a position he would keep until his retirement on the first day of 1957, after working for the company nearly 53 years. Less than a year and a half later, in April of 1958, Dan Folk Seawright died at he and Mary's home at age 70, though his health had been in decline for some time. Dan's death was sudden and unexpected, and upon it, his son Lee Allen Seawright inherited half of Indian Grass Ranch, which he sold pieces of for years to come, while Dan's spouse Mary Moore Seawright kept the other half. At 49 years old, Mary was a widow. She and Dan never had children, and Mary never tied the knot again. For 30 years after the death of her husband, Mary Seawright continued to oversee and operate the ranch and was seen less and less in public. During these years, developers repeatedly offered her high-dollar amounts for the land, millions upon millions of dollars, but Mary wouldn't have it. For one, she didn't want to leave. But perhaps what really stopped her from selling is the fact that she did not want the land developed. Mary Seawright wouldn't even sell a very small piece of her property to a company that needed a radio tower in that area. Her neighbor, Mary told them, flew his small airplane from his property, and the last thing she wanted was a potential hazard on her ranch for him. As she continued to grow more comfortable in her ways, Folks who'd have the pleasure to come around Mary reveled in her eccentricities. She chose to live in an old house on the ranch that had no indoor plumbing. Most often, she sported well-worn blue jeans, western shirts, and bandanas around her neck. The attire was topped off by a dirty, wide-brimmed felt cowgirl hat. In 1986, Mary's cattle escaped an open fence gate left by workers installing a pipeline for a residential neighborhood being built along her property's western edge. Still driving her 1964 Studebaker, the 78-year-old woman had always simply coaxed her cows back by getting out of the car with a bucket of feed and calling out to them. They'd always come back, and they did this time too. But as she looked out and saw her cows in the middle of the road, Mary decided she could no longer handle ranching. She went home that night and made plans to sell the herd.
0: Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office.
2: She agreed to see the manager for the Austin Parks and Recreation Department's Planning, Design, and Construction Division, Stuart Strong. Strong and the department were worried that development was going to destroy any open spaces that remain in the city, replacing the complex creativity of nature with symmetrical rows of cookie-cutter houses. They didn't want Mary Seawright selling to developers. City Councilperson Beverly Griffith turned Stuart Strong on to Mary, recalling that she was, quote, an environmentalist before that term was in popular use, end quote. Strong's meeting with Mary, however, didn't go well. If she knew or took a quick liking to you, Mary would let you into the ranch and entertain you like no one else could by telling stories of a bygone Texas age tales both experienced and learned as an enthusiastic student of the state's history. In fact, she'd named her prized mayor Texas. But Mary, who was in her late 70s at this time, wouldn't let Strong through the gate. She spoke with him from inside with courtesy, but the 38 caliber pistol in her back pocket was intimidating. Strong said he certainly kept the conversation polite, but it was crystal clear Mary Moore Seawright, as he put it, was very much in control of the situation. Later, Strong sent a new hire in, a woman named Junie Plummer. Junie's recollections of the afternoon she spent with Mary are, perhaps, the best portrait we have of who she truly was. What she recalled is remarkable. Junie said, quote, Mrs. Seawright had on a pair of work jeans, a crusty old cowboy hat, work shirt, a scarf tied around her neck, two bob earrings which did not match, and a small gun clearly showing in her back pocket. She looked like a character out of a western movie along the lines of Lonesome Dove, end quote. The thirty-eight caliber pistol in the back pocket of Mary's worn-out old blue jeans was loaded with snake-shot rounds. As the name implies, she used the firearm to kill serpents that might attack her or her cattle while she was making rounds on her ranch. During the course of their meeting, Mary showed Junie around the pristine property. Though she became embarrassed that the grass and wildflowers had become overgrown as the women drove around the ranch, Mary perked up and forgot all about it when a family of deer sprinted past. She'd trained them to perform in just that way, Mary joked. Though she had made plans to restore the many vintage cars she kept at her ranch home, as Mary showed Junie around, she knew it was finally time to sell. She couldn't hide her sadness, but she knew. However, Mary told Junie that there was a catch involved, should anyone want to purchase the land. It had to be preserved as is, for the most part. The city of Austin quickly secured a grant from the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department and arranged to buy 88 acres from Mary Moore Seawright. It's all the money the city could get, Junie told Mary. But that wasn't going to work for the 80-year-old rancher, and Mary had a deal to make. She would donate the remaining 206 acres so long as the land would always remain a park in a near-natural state. I'm never unhappy out here, and I'm very happy that you all are going to take it over, Mary said, adding, I want you all to have it and enjoy it you all meaning the residents of Austin. City officials readily agreed to all Mary's demands, of course, and the property, which includes plenty of beautiful views of Slaughter Creek, rolling fields and meadows, an abundance of native wildlife, and winding trails through heavy, serene thickets of oak and juniper, was named Mary Moore Seawright Metropolitan Park in November of 1988. After gifting the city with their most spectacular park, Mary headed back to her hometown. At the end of 1988, Mary Seawright arranged for her 1964 Studebaker, her 48 Ford pickup, and her six beloved dogs to be moved with her to Paris. She'd been away from the modest Texas city for more than 48 years. Mary moved back in with her older sister Margie at 711 Pine Bluff Street, a home that had been in the family since it was built in 1919, when she was 11 years old. Mary was now 80 years old. Margie, like her little sister, had been widowed decades before, in 1933 and never remarried. In Paris, her big brother, Hardy Moore, still looked after the family's law practice, which their father, William Folsom Moore, had begun in 1893. She was saddened by giving up her ranch, but happy to be home. Though Mary spent most of the daylight hours outside her childhood home at first, watching her dogs and cats play and rest, She mostly kept to herself. Mary, perhaps feeling nostalgic for her younger years, was buying up houses on Pine Bluff Street. By all accounts, the woman was at peace spending her golden years back alongside her sister. But, on July 8, 1993, Margie Lou Moore Hubbard died at age 90, leaving her little sister, now 84 years old, to live alone in the family home. We spoke with Cherie Bell, then a reporter for the city's newspaper, The Paris News, who remembered the elderly woman tending to her flowers and plants while wearing magnificent flowing gowns, accessorized with a fancy hat and a lacy scarf around her neck. She was like from a different century, Cherie commented in a 1996 newspaper article. Cherie rented a house on Pine Bluff, owned by Mary Moore Seawright, whose affairs were being handled by city manager Mike Malone at the request of her brother. He handled much of Mary's affairs and ran errands for her, including bringing Mary two meals a day. Malone thought the world of the eccentric woman. He called her colorful and charming. Cherie said that Mary was frail at this point and it's reported she began staying indoors most of the time. Though she likely needed help either by hiring a live-in caretaker or moving to a retirement community, Mary was fiercely independent and refused any such thing. Although she was certainly cantankerous if necessary, Cherie said, Mary had a big heart and was a giving woman. Characteristics that, she added, might have been her downfall. On the evening of Sunday, August eighteenth, 1996, Mary Moore Seawright's unofficial caretaker, Mike Malone, arrived at 711 Pine Bluff Street with dinner for the 87-year-old woman. Mary wasn't answering the door, and Malone entered the home. He was horrified to find Mary unconscious, bloodied, and hardly breathing. Mike Malone quickly called 911. Police and paramedics arrived at the scene not long after, and a helicopter touched down to fly Mary to Dallas, likely to Parkland's trauma unit. Mary succumbed to her injuries three days later, on August 21, 1996, later at autopsy. The Dallas County Medical Examiner determined that 87-year-old Mary Moore Seawright died of multiple blunt force injuries to her head. She'd also been sexually assaulted. Next time on Gone Cold, Texas True Crime. The investigation into the slaying of Mary Seawright and a double murder. If you have any information about the murder of Mary Moore Seawright, please call the Paris, Texas Police at 903-784-6688. Our dear friend Arlene needs your help finding answers in the 1996 murder of her uncle and best friend, Leon Morales in Brown County, Texas, just outside Brownwood. She's been stonewalled in every attempt to get answers, so if you are able, please donate to her GoFundMe which we'll link to in the show notes. Arlene desperately needs an attorney and private investigator. Soon, there will be a raffle announced where you can win a ton of merch from several participating podcasts for donating to the Leon Lorales GoFundMe. Keep an eye out for that on our or The Fall Line's social media accounts. It's been brought to my attention that the last few episodes I've said Brownville instead of Brownwood when referencing Leon's GoFundMe. Sorry about that. If you haven't already, look for Gone Cold on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter by searching Gone Cold and looking for the Texas logo. If you'd like to support the show and get the episodes ad-free, go to patreon.com forward slash gone cold podcast. Thanks to all of you who support us there. It's a huge deal to us. If you are not in a position to help Gone Cold financially, but would like to in some other way, well, I've got just the thing. Leaving us a five-star rating and written review on iTunes particularly helps Gone Cold's visibility. The more folks who find us and listen, the greater the chance someone with information about a case hears the show and comes forward with what they know every little bit helps and we appreciate you alls support immensely however you choose to give it thanks for listening y'all
0: lucky land casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky lucky in line at the deli i guess aha in my dentist's office